1 Timothy chapter number 5 in your Bibles. <clears throat> while, while, you're, while you're making your way there, I just wanted to make a, a few comments. Um, most of you who are part of the church here in the last couple of weeks have received a letter describing some of some, some transitions that are taking place uh, amongst the leadership of the church. And um, we recognize that this can sometimes be a difficult time, can be challenging, um, perhaps unsettling. So um, our prayer is that the Lord will grant us a special level of grace and restfulness in, uh, in his sovereignty through this process, that he is working out his purposes for this church and uh, that he continues to be good um, all the time. We want to encourage you to invite you to come if you have any questions. I would like to encourage you or invite you to come if you have any questions in regards to the future of the church and um, what things are going to look like. I would love to sit down and talk with you if you're concerned and, um, or if you just have a question or if you just want to come and pray for the church. I would, I would love to um, pray with you in, in the office or wherever it might be a, a good place to pray our short-term short, short, short -term goals um, for moving forward, immediately uh, starting today, actually, I'll be meeting with the deacons and then some of the, other el some of the other leaders in the church, and we'll start meeting today and we'll continue to meeting into the new year. Um, the purpose of our meetings will be to identify potential elders or leaders for the future and then to co communicate with them for a season about the direction and the beliefs of the church and then in the end to present to the church um, men to be affirmed for leadership in the church. Our leaders who are here are committed through this process to being transparent and helpful. And, and again, we, we emphasize that. If you have questions or concerns, we're happy to sit down and talk with you about the future and what God has for the church here we desire, or I desire, and the other leaders that will be a part of this process desire for you to pray for us. The Lord would grant us humility and wisdom um, for the future. We need your support. I will say this, in, in these difficult times, in these challenging times, sometimes unsettling, um, we want to remember that God is sovereign. Uh, he's in control we want to remember that he is working out his purpose and um, that he is good through these things. And uh, the devil looks and loves to get his foot in the door and things like this, and we just want to avoid that. And so I hope that's helpful for you this morning. I've been praying that God would help me to say the right things with humility and grace and that... Uh, it would be received rightly, and so I, I pray that that's the case. And, and again, if there's any um, need to, to talk, uh, feel free to come to me, um, one of the deacons, um, and uh, we'd be happy to sit down and talk about the future with you. With that being said, First uh, Timothy chapter number five. We are uh, returning to our study on um, proper behavior in the church. We're mindful of what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy about the significance of behaving right. And we want to remember that the church is the lighthouse, if you will, of the gospel. We're here for the purpose of sharing the gospel with people around us. 
And not, and not just sharing the gospel uh, verbally, but also sharing the gospel by how we function, and by how we live amongst our, each other. And uh, it, it starts with uh, our home life, our families, our husband and wife relationships, our relationship with our children is a wonderful testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the working of God in the Trinity. But it also uh, takes one step further when it comes to the church as well. And the church, the way the church functions, the way the church relates to each other is also evidence to um, the gospel. It's also evidence to the goodness of God and to redemption and salvation of relationships. So as the uh, as was read this morning, and again, as we've gone on this journey, the, the theme of Timothy is how to be, behave in the church. The goal, uh, the aim is mentioned in chapter 1 and verse number 5. The aim is love. Um, the goal or the aim that the Lord wishes to accomplish is that we be gospel-oriented people, and that by being gospel-oriented, we live quiet and peaceful lives, <clears throat> and we live lives of, of uh, love and service towards each other. Uh, that's the epitome, if you will, of a gospel-focused life, and, and uh, that's what our goal is. In chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2, and, and not just verse 1 and 2, but really the entire chapter, uh, the, the scriptures talk about relating to each other. How, how do we relate to each other um, on a daily basis? In verse 1 and 2, it talks about relating in general, men and women, young and old. It, it really is kind of an overview of, of all of the relations that take place in the church. In verses 3 through 16, the Apostle Paul deals specifically re with relating to those who are needy, um, widows specifically, but but in general, just anybody who is needy within the church, how are we to relate to them? And then in verses 17 through 25, it's how to relate to leaders in the church, uh, how to, how to inter interact with them. We want to remember that how we relate to each other in the church can either lead to strife, frustration, and division, which is seen in 1 Corinthians um, and other books of the Bible as well, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 3 really unfold the idea of uh, improper functioning or relating to each other, leading to this strife, frustration, and division, and ultimately misrepresenting the uh, peace and quiet uh, love and service that Christians are supposed to be representing. Um, the, the Christian's life, we were, we were talking this morning in a prayer meeting, the Christian's life is, sh should be the, the freest life that exists. Um, we don't get saved and enter into a world of bondage. We get saved and enter into a world of freedom. We are liberated from those things which bound us up before salvation, and now we are free, and we're not free to serve self, which is what the bondage was, but we're now free to walk in obedience to, um, to our God. We're free to walk in submission to him. Um, Romans 6 says we're free to walk in newness of life. There's a new purpose. There's a new direction. There's a new vision for those who have uh, found their relationship with Christ. And that walk is a walk of peace. It's a walk of quietness. It's a walk of restfulness. It's a walk of trust. Um, oftentimes when we describe Christianity, we describe it uh, by looking at external um, evidences, but truly the, the evidences of true Christianity are not external, but they are internal. 
The fruit of the Spirit is not external, it is, it is internal. It is, it is the heart of an individual who has been converted by the power of God and now is manifesting that to the world around them. And this is visible by how we treat each other and by how we function together. So while our interactions can lead to strife, frustration, and division as seen in 1 Corinthians 3, they can also lead to peace and quiet as we see in Romans chapter number 12. Turn there with me if you would. In Romans chapter number 12 and verse 14, the Bible says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud or haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends upon you, live What's the next word? Live peaceably with all men. In other words, as much as, it, as much as we can impact it, as much as we can influence all of the relationships that we have, we should be in pursuit of this peaceableness with all men. And it's not a peaceableness that's a result of always positive circumstances. It's a peacefulness that's a result of the redeeming work of Christ in our lives. It's a recognition that God is sovereign in every circumstance and in every situation, and I can rest in his sovereignty. I can rest in his control. I can rest in his power, and I can rest in his goodness. He goes on to say, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay saith the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Turn with me just a, a few books to your right. In the book of Ephesians, chapter number four, we see the same idea The Apostle Paul talks about in this passage of Scripture putting off the old man, um, being clothed with the new man. In other words, letting the, out, letting the outside reflect what God has done on the inside of your heart. He says in verse number five, uh, 25 of Ephesians 5, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down upon your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Let no corrupt communication or conversation or talk come out of your mouth, but uh, only such as good for building up or edifying as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who are hearing. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, soft-hearted, compassionate would be another word for this, merciful. 
Be tenderhearted, seeking to understand the other person's situation or circumstance, seeking to enter into his difficulty or problem or her difficulty or problem. This is the idea of compassion or the gift of mercy. This is how we function amongst ourselves in creating this, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And he goes on, we, we, we're going to stop there, but he goes on to describe this in further, this relationship that we have, this functionality that we have amongst each other that is significant and important. Why, why is it significant or important that we behave towards each other, we relate in a proper way? There's two reasons. Number one, the church, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, is the pillar of the truth. In other words, it's the church that gives evidence to the truth. It's the church that says the truth works. If nobody ever does that which is true, the world has no evidence to whether or not it works. The church has been set apart by God to do and live in the truth, to do and live the gospel, to do and live what is right so that the world can see that being a follower of Jesus works. Being a Christian is the best life we can have, is it not? It is the best life. Being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus Christ is the best life. But folks, listen, if the devil can deceive us and keep us from being a Christian practically, he can keep us from experiencing God's blessing and seeing God's, uh, and the world seeing God's way as right. What we do is we set out to walk in God's path and God blesses that path and he affirms that path and he affirms that way. Why is it important that we live differently than the world? Why is it important that we live out God's plan? Because we are the evidence that the truth is real and that the truth works. Most of us would say that we believe that, wouldn't we? Most of us would say that what we just read in Romans and Ephesians, that, hey, you know what, that stuff works. But then when it comes to our daily functioning amongst each, our, each other, it, all of a sudden it doesn't work anymore, does it? All of a sudden now we're challenged to live a life that has no bitterness and has no anger and has no wrath and is forgiving and kind and we're challenged to live that lifestyle, but, but it doesn't work, does it? I can't tell you how many people that I talk to in, in counseling that have said to me, I, I pointed out specifically, this is what God's word says, and their answer is this, we've tried that before, and it just doesn't work. Does God's word work? God's word works, doesn't it? It may not be that you experience immediate results, because God may withhold those immediate results to get you to a point of commitment and devotion to that path. But you must know, we must know that God's word and God's way is the right way and the right word. It is truth. Why else is this important? We're not only the pillar of the truth, but we are, the church is the public display of the gospel. How many of us, when we tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ, do we take them back to stories that happened thousands of years ago? 
That's our, that's our focus when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is applicable to me today, meaning that I've experienced God's goodness, I've experienced God's deliverance, I've experienced God's grace in 2018. I can tell stories about the gospel of Jesus Christ that are relative to what's going on in our world today. We want to we point at and focus on, and I understand it because the Bible is full of all these historical books and writings and stories about the gospel impacting people's lives. But the question people want to have answered is not does the gospel, did the gospel impact Paul's life, but does the gospel impact your life? Did the gospel impact my life? What can, I, what can I tell you, what can I share with you that says the gospel really works in 2018? In Psalm 40 and verse 3, the Bible says that the Lord has put a new song in my heart. I think of the psalmist as, I mean, he's waking up each morning and he's not saying, wow, I'm glad that the Lord did this thousands of years ago. But he's saying, man, look what the Lord did in my life yesterday. Look what the Lord is doing in my life today. Listen, we are, we are as the church, the evidence we are asked the church to display. We are a public display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We tell people that while you're the enemy of God, he will welcome you back and embrace you as his child if you come to him in repentance and faith. We tell them that, but people come to us in repentance and faith and ask us for forgiveness, and we refuse to forgive them. Is that gospel? That's not gospel, is it? We are a public display. We are a visible expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what his church has been left here to do. The reality of it is that we may be the only display of the gospel that people ever see. We may be the only evidence of the truth of the gospel and the effectiveness of the gospel that people ever see. It's important that we be a good display of the gospel. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says this. You don't need to turn there. It says this, do all things without grumbling and complaining. And all God's people said, come on, the rest of you, do all things without grumbling and complaining, right? Why? Why do all things without grumbling and complaining? That, that command means nothing if we don't know the why. Why do all things without grumbling and complaining? Watch this. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. What is he saying? He's saying that you might shine as lights in a very dark world. You might be the expression of God's truth in the midst of darkness. You might be uh, Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. Don't put your light under a bushel. Don't, don't put your, you know, you, you go into your house and everybody has these little lamps, right? And everyone, we have them here, lights, and they're covered with something that's going to make that light look less bright, right? The Lord says as a Christian, knock, knock these covers off. Knock the covers off of our life and let people see the brightness of our light. That's what Matthew chapter number five says. He says that we might be 
without blame, without blemish, without blame, in the midst of a crooked and, and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in this world. It's not just so that we can be an expression of the truth, but it's also so that other people will see that expression. And according to Matthew chapter number five, that they will do what? They will glorify your Father who is in heaven. They will glorify God because of the light that we have shined. I think of what the Bible says in Galatians, I think it's chapter number one, when the apostle Paul experienced this extraordinary conversion and most church people know what Paul's conversion was all about. In the very end it says, and they glorified God in me. The last verse I think it is, they glorified God in me. In other words, Paul says, they glorified God because of what happened to me. That's our testimony. That's our, that's our witness. And that's how we're supposed to function in the, in the world that we live in. In our, in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's going to use the analogy of the family in relation, to this, in relation to this truth of how we treat each other, how we function together in such a way that we display the glories of Christ we display the significance of Christ. We display the awesomeness of Christ. We, we display the unity that Christ causes. We display the kindness that Christ causes. We display the love that Christ causes. We display Christ. He's given us this community right here to accomplish that. It's weird because an individual can't accomplish that, can they? Can an individual living in their own world by themselves with nobody else accomplish and show what it looks like to love others? It takes a group. It takes someone not to just be loving, but it takes someone to be loved. That's why the church has been set apart to accomplish this, and not just the church. The church is used as a, the church here, the home is used as a metaphor to describe the church. It's not just the church, but it's the home. The Lord says in Matthew 12 and verse 60, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother, he is my sister, he is my mother. The Lord uses an analogy of the home to describe what the church should be like. And so I just want to unpack that uh, for us for a few minutes. What, is it, what does it mean, according to our text here, to function in the church like we would function in the home? Now, let me say this to begin with. This can be a distorted perspective, especially in the world that we live in. We say God is our father, right? So we immediately are making a family, we're making a family connection with God being like my father. Some of you have had really bad fathers. Some of you have had unfaithful fathers. Some of you have had, some of you have had absent fathers, so this connection that the, that the Apostle Paul is making with Timothy is not always clear. It's not always understandable. Sometimes the analogies that are used, when, when God uses a human analogy to paint a picture of a divine truth, sometimes it's not very clear. It's so important that we understand that, that this analogy is directly connected to 1 Timothy chapter number 3, where Paul gives a list of all the um, qualities of an elder and he talks about someone who has a godly home, a right home. So the distinction is, is this is what the home should look like, and this is what the church should look like. In, in Galatians, it does the same thing. In Galatians, it does a, a lot of analysis, or Ephesians. 
It does a lot of analogies of the home, brothers, sisters, moms, dads. And then in Ephesians chapter number five, it says, here's what the home looks like from God's perspective, right? So the church doesn't need to look like the home from our perspective. It needs to look like the home from God's perspective. So we want to make sure that we have that understanding because when we think about, when I think about my, it's like, Lord says, John, treat your church body like you treated your brothers and sisters, Okay, you guys don't want to experience that. All right, you don't want to, we, don't want, we don't want to go there because the analogy is, for me, because of my relationship with my brothers and sisters wasn't as strong as it should have been. So you, you got to make sure that you understand that distinction as we enter into this because sometimes when we think of, of, of fathers and mothers, we think of things that are not truly what God wants us to represent so we go, to, we, go to books, we go to chapters like Ephesians 5, which says fathers are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, right? And that wives are to submit to their husbands, and children are to obey their parents. This is like a, a harmonious family, right? Isn't that what the Lord is describing in Ephesians 5 and 6? A harmonious family? And that's what he's describing about the church. That's what he's saying about us. Not we be like some of our families and my family, uh, but that would be the family that God has, has put together. I'm not talking about my immediate family, <laughs> my extended family, all right? So, so we, need to get, uh, we need to understand that principle. And that's why in 1 Timothy 3, as well as in Ephesians 5, you have the, the, the description, if you will, of what a family ought to look like. So in chapter number five, verse one and two, the Bible says, do not rebuke an older man, um, it's the same Greek word that we get the word elder from. You'll actually see it at the end of this chapter being translated elder. And the reason why it's translated older man, because the context tells us that it's not referring to a, a position in the church, but more preferring to somebody who is of age, somebody who is, who is older in the church. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older men as um, mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So what I want to do is look at three or four things about this family relating, church relating as a family. Number one is when, when are we called to relate as a family, okay? When are we called to relate as a family? The emphasis of this text is it's dealing with, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a difficult circumstance. He's dealing with a hard circumstance. You can kind of see the idea of rebuking is, is in the text. So, so obviously there's been a situation where there's a rebuke that's needed and the Apostle Paul is giving some instructions on how to properly give that rebuke. I believe that that's true and accurate, but I, I think also what Paul is doing is he's giving us the worst of circumstances. He's, he's not saying only treat older men like fathers in bad situations. And only treat younger men as brothers when it's bad situation. I think what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's taking us to a, a, a state, a level of where things are really not good. And he's saying, here's how you function when things are not really good. But ultimately, here's how you function all of the time. Okay? This should be our normal mode of function in, in whatever circumstance, whatever situation we're dealing with as a church family Okay, we'll call ourselves a church family this morning. As a church family, these are the things that we should be um, pursuing uh, in our relating with each other. And again, I believe that the Apostle Paul is making the statement, in every circumstance, in every situation, we are to relate to each other in, a, um, in this way. And we'll talk about what way that is. 
okay? Sometimes we have circumstances that we face that are challenging. They're difficult. They challenge our humility. They challenge our unity. They challenge our equality. They challenge our respect and our honor towards each other. And there are times that we don't have challenges to that. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, is that in every circumstance, in every situation, to act in such a way as to um, respect and honor other people, okay? To um, consider others better than yourself, to um, think about others more than you think about yourself. The scriptures are clear on, on this thinking, but it's not just in certain situations. I believe that the Apostle Paul is saying in all situations, we're to treat people as um, brothers, sisters in Christ in the church, okay? Turn with me to Matthew 18. You're, most of you are familiar with this passage of scripture, Matthew 18, which is a uh, passage about um, one of the, I think, I believe one of the beginning passages after chapter 16, where it deals with the, with the church, with the coming church. And um, Matthew 16 talks about that the Lord will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 18 talks about how we function together as a body of believers. Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, if you're, what's the next word? Okay, is he talking about brother, meaning I have four brothers and three sisters? Is it talking about one of them? Or is it talking about everybody in the body of Christ in the church? Okay, everybody in the body of Christ in the church. If my brother in Christ sins against me, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take two, uh, one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to them, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So what we see right away in this text of scripture um, is we see this process that's taking place. It's um, many people call it church discipline, but it's a process of one person going to another a brother and saying, hey, um, you sinned against me in this way and presenting the case to them about that sin and hopefully restoring that relationship without there being a, a broad um, knowledge of what's taking place. So trying, to, trying to limit the impact or the effect of it, right? And removing that malice and that, you know, I, I, don't, want, I don't want this to be a public rebuke, but let's, can I talk to you, brother, and, and can we talk through this? This is something that, that um, has affected me in a negative way, and I just want to work through it with you. That's kind of the initial process. Here's your brother, and you're just trying to protect his reputation, Right? Okay, we do that as family members. We, we, we do that. It's something that we do normally. So we start with the assumption that this is a brother or sister in Christ. We give them the benefit of the doubt. We act initially in grace and humility. Uh, a Matthew 7 principle, we, we get the beam out of our own eye before we address the dust that's in somebody else's eye. That's the idea of recognizing that we are no better than anybody else. Okay? So... We come to them in this situation. It's a difficult situation. There's sin. We approach them as a brother. We seek reconciliation. If they refuse to accept that reconciliation, we then go to them with, a, with another brother in Christ, and we then challenge them together. The last thing that we do is we present them to the church body. And what's interesting is at the end of presenting them to the church body, the Bible says that we treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Okay, and what, what, what Matthew is saying is, is at that point, you can identify that this person is likely not a brother. There is no repentance in their heart. There is no uh, faith in Christ. There's, none of these things are present. And so the idea of treating them as a Gentile, and, and Matthew is a book that's really all about the Jews, is treating them as they're not a part of the family. And you put them out so that they can then be dealt with by the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5 deals with, this, with a very similar principle. You are to deal with somebody as a brother, and he talks about how that they're supposed to be sorrowful and mournful over this situation. You're to deliver them out of the church for the Lord to deal with them with the hopes of them being restored. That's the main goal of church discipline is restoration, right? But sometimes there isn't that restoration, There isn't that restoring of relationships and things like that. And it comes to a place, again, Matthew 18, where you treat them as if they're not a part of the family. This is very rare. Never never the goal of entering into this. The goal of entering into this is always restoration. But, But there comes a point in time, again, we treat people like they're a part of the family. We treat people with grace. We give them the benefit of the doubt until they prove themselves to not be a part of the family. Okay? It's like, a, it's like a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Okay, if we don't know it's a wolf right away, we're going to deal with it. We're going to, okay, we see these signs. We, we're a little bit concerned. We want to talk with you and walk with you through it. Once they reveal themselves as a wolf, we no longer coddle them anymore, do we? Okay, they're not a part of the family. They're not a sheep. They're a, a danger to the body. So then we have to deal with them a little bit differently. So we want to we enter into... Treating people as a family member, we want to enter into these difficulties, into these uh, processes um, with, with this grace, and then once they um, prove themselves possibly to not be a part of the family, then we, we act um, effectively. If they prove themselves to be an, an imposter, someone who has come in to hurt the church, then we have to deal with that accordingly. Titus 3 says it this way, as for the person who stirs up division after Warning him once and then twice, have nothing, to, nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Okay, again, we enter into this, we're in this relationship, we see this person as a brother, we're going to seek restoration and reconciliation, and then there's a point where, we, where, where that line is crossed and, and that person is identified as a danger to the church. Okay, let's go back to our text. So when does this principle apply? It applies in all circumstances. In every circumstance, when we have somebody that's in the, a part of the body of Christ, a part of this group of believers who are a part of this church, we're gonna treat them as family until we have a reason to not treat them as family. We're gonna treat them with love and respect until there's a reason to treat them with harshness, Okay as a part of the family. There's, there's certain benefits to being a part of the family and those benefits are uh, displayed in, in God's word. The second thing that we see in this text is how do we relate to them? The apostle Paul gives us two um, terms to describe how we relate to each other in the family. Number one is, he says in verse number one, do not rebuke an elder but encourage him. Okay? Do not rebuke an older person. The, the principle that's given in verse number one is not just related to the elder, the older person and the younger person. The principle actually flows through the entire two verses. 
It is, do not rebuke an older person, but encourage him. Encourage a younger person as you would a brother. Encourage a mother as you would. The principle flows throughout both of the verses. Okay, so the idea is, is that when you're working with people in the church, when you're dealing with a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, you work in such a way as to encourage, not be harsh. You work from the realm of grace, the foundation of grace. When you talk to somebody, Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is encouraging or edifying. Okay, you're working to build people up. You're working to encourage people. You're working with them in, in such a way as you're trying to disciple them or move them closer to the Lord, and, and, and you're doing it in a loving, compassionate way. We read in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, and I just wrote these things down out of that text. Honesty, not deception. Forgiveness, not anger. Giving, not taking. Encouragement, not corruption. Kindness, not bitterness. This is the attitude that we can have towards each other. Ephesians 4, 15 says, speaking the truth in love, we grow up. We grow up, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, even into Christ. So we're on this journey, this discipleship journey, and we are growing into Christ, and we're speaking the truth in love as we go through this process. The word here for harshness, the Greek word implies this, a striker a, somebody who beats or chastises with words, chides, upbraids, a sharp rebuke, a harsh or violent rebuke. This is somebody who's verbally abusive. When they speak out of their mouth, it's like a sharp knife coming and, 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 and it brings hurt and pain to the one who is receiving it. The Bible does tell us that the Lord has a tongue that's like a two-edged sword. And listen, he is the Lord. <laughs> We are not. Let our, let our tongue be filled with grace. The Bible tells us that our words should be seasoned with salt. They should be salty words. They should bring flavor and preservation, not destruction. How should we relate to each other? We should relate with encouragement, not harshness, not abusive with our words. This is not only relate in a in a church sense, but it also relates to our home lives as well. It's easy to say, well, I, I don't, I'm not abusive with my words at church because there's lots of people talking or, or watching you, but the same principle applies to your home life. Our words should not be abusive to our mate or to our children. You say, I don't, I don't hit my kids, but, or I don't hit my wife, and, and I praise the Lord for that, but, I, but I've often find it to be very common that we hit them with our mouths. We hit them with our words. We're abusive, we're harsh. And I'm not speaking to you this morning, I'm speaking to me. This is a challenge that I face, that I'm, I'm growing out of, and, and I've never been one to be harsh with, with the touch, but I have found myself to be challenged with my mouth, that my words be encouraging and, and uplifting, that I, that I see my wife and my children as a special gift from God that I would never want to harm not just with my, with my hands, but also with my mouth. I think sometimes we don't realize the fact that we do as much harm with our words as we do with our hands. We destroy our children's, their heart. 
their spirit. We take away their freedom to live. This ought not to be the case. It shouldn't be the case in the church. It shouldn't be the case in the home. Our words should not be harsh. They should not be meant to bring fear and frustration, but they should be meant to bring encouragement, to bring, uh, to bring grace, which is, which is supernatural ability to accomplish the things that God has called us to do. I remember when I played basketball as a, a high school student, I had a younger brother who was on the same basketball team, and we had, we had seven players, so we were very low, we were very short in number, and I can remember not always trying to beat my brother down about how bad he was. It was like, come on, you can do this. It was encouraging words. I needed him to be on my team. I didn't just need him to be on my team. I needed him to be an effective part of it. And you know what was not gonna be helpful for me to do was to beat him down and to, to cause him to think less of his part in the process. I had to encourage him, lift him up, say, hey, it, you're, you're, you can do this. Come alongside all these people who have been under, under the law for years. And he promises to come alongside of them and he's going to, He's, not, he's going to come into them and he's going to walk with them through this journey. And if you can picture a dad coming up to a son and just putting his arm around him and saying, you know what, man? I know this life is difficult, but I'm, I'm here with you. That's what this word means. It means to call alongside. When the apostle Paul says in Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, that word beseech there is the same word. It's the word to call alongside. The apostle Paul is actually calling the church alongside of him to glorify God. That's what we're, we're called alongside of. We are called to help, to disciple. That's what the Holy Spirit does, right? How many want a Holy Spirit that crushes us every day? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is living within us and he's always crying out what? Abba, Father. It's the most intimate term for a dad. He's always reminding us of our relationship with God that comes through Jesus Christ. We have nothing to fear anymore. Amen? We have nothing to fear anymore. We, we walk in the fullness and newness of our redemption and the Holy Spirit reminds us of that. And when we get into a difficult circumstance, the Holy Spirit's there to, to comfort us. And when we lack wisdom, the Holy Spirit's there to give us wisdom. Right? That, that's what he's there for. And then he says this, hey, hey, church, listen, this is what you are. This is what you're to be doing with each other. You're to be walking with each other, discipling each other. You see somebody with hurt. I, I see this all the time in this church, and I love it. You see somebody who's hurting, and what do people think right away? They walk up, and they're like, hey, can I give you a hug? It's like you see all these hugs going on. This is what the church is about. We're a family, and there's hurt and pain and things like that, and people need encouragement. They, they need to be lift, uplifted. People don't need to be torn down. The re reality of it is, folks, is the world will do th the world will the world and the devil will do their best to tear you down. Won't right? The thief cometh not but forth to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life, and you might have it more abundantly. That's what Jesus says. That's what we're here for. We're here to show each other that life and let let the world watch the joy of this body. Let the world watch what it's like to be a part of Grace Bible Church of Hollister from the outside. And then you'll bring your neighbors and your friends and they'll be like, oh my goodness, that is such an amazing place. I had somebody say to me recently, 
the reason why we started going to grace was because of how friendly it is. That's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be. Not harsh, not mean, not brutal with our words, but, but comforting and, and caring, a friend, a teacher, a caregiver, a partner. Not a partner in crime, but a partner in the Christian life. We got enough partners in crime, right? Partner in the gospel. A partner in loving people. A partner in difficulty. This is what we're supposed to be. This is what we're, this is what we're called to. So how do, we, how do we do this? We do this by being encouraging and not being harsh. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8, the Bible says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only in the gospel of God, but also of ourselves, because you have become very dear to us. This is the church. This is what we're about. The world should look at Grace Bible Church and say, I, I think I understand the gospel a little bit. I think it makes sense to me. That group of people is a great expression of it. This is what we're called to. He not only says encouragement, not, um, not uh, harshness, but at the end he says, in all purity. Or all of these things done in purity. And this word simply implies two things, two, two ways in which we're pure. The word means pure, sinless, clean, or chaste. It's used only one other time in the Bible in 1 Timothy 4.12 when the apostle Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise your youth, but be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in, and in purity. So here's what the apostle Paul is saying, that live amongst each other as a family and make sure you do it with purity. He's saying this, make sure that your motive for doing it is right. I had a, 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 a man in Nebraska that I was working with in discipleship, and, and he came to me one day and he says, man, he's like, I really enjoy going to church. And he didn't go to our church, he went to another church in town, and it was the largest church in town, of course. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, why do you go there? He's like, because I make all my business contacts there. Hence the reason why he went to the biggest church in town. Listen, the church is not a place. You don't treat each other kindly and nicely because you're going to make some benefit out of it. Our motives have to be pure. The Apostle Paul deals with all throughout the book of 1 Timothy a pure conscience, a clean conscience. That means that we do things that are right, but we not only do things that are right, we do them for the right reason. The motive behind doing them is right. I often tell people this, do something without ever expecting anything in return. Because if you do something expecting something in return, sooner or later you'll stop doing something. Because you'll stop getting what you want in return. If you do it for the right reasons, you will remain faithful to doing it because you're not doing it for a return. So our motive should be pure, but not only does he deal here with motive being pure, but he deals with morality being pure. In other words, treat, your, treat, the, treat the younger women in this church like they're your sisters. That's what he's saying. From a moral perspective, show honor and respect to the women of the church. 
It's not just about motive, it's about morality. The church in Corinth was full of immorality. That's why the Apostle Paul writes 1 Corinthians 7. He's like, respect the women of the church, young and old, respect them, honor them. I want you to turn with me to the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just a little to your left. Watch what the Apostle Paul says here. He says in verse number nine, now concerning brotherly love, okay? That's that family love, right? Now concerning brotherly love, uh, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do the more and more. Do this more and more and to, inspire, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we have instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Man, praise the Lord. That's exactly what we're talking about. That's what the church should be. The church should be in, interdependent but not dependent on the world. We should be depending on each other but not having necessity for the world to show us approval. But watch what he says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. And this is not the text that I was looking for. I'm going back here. Go back to chat verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to possess or control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one, tra- that no one trust, transgress and wrong his brother or his sister in this matter. The church should be a place of holiness when it comes to the people of the opposite sex. It should be a place of purity. We should know how to possess our own bodies, but we should also know how to honor other people. Let that no one trespass or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord isn't an avenger in all these things. If we have told you beforehand and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man. What's the next two words? But God. This is a purity in the church that's not just how our motives for doing things. Yes, it includes that, but this is a purity in the church that is is men honoring women, men respecting women, men not putting women down, but lifting them up, respecting and honoring them. He says, so that you may walk properly before uh, outsiders and be um, am I in the wrong verse again? Do not regard this, disregards not men who gives the Holy Spirit to you. And then it goes on to the brotherly love. So we're just, we're to, how are we to relate to each other? We're to relate with encouragement. We're to relate with purity. We're to relate with respect for each other as brothers and sisters. Lastly, this morning is with whom do we relate? And I'm just gonna give you these things. Old men, we relate to them as fathers, Young men, we, we relate to them as brothers. Old women, we relate, older women, we relate to them as mothers. And younger women, we relate to them as sisters. In other words, 
Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. When it comes to older people who are older than you, you should show them what? Respect and honor. Okay? You should honor, respect. The, the Old Testament talks about when a man comes up to you, he has gray hair, what do you do? You stand up. Anybody, we, we, some of us still do that. I mean, it's, it's a practice that has been somewhat lost. But if an elderly person comes up, you stand up and you shake their hand. You, you show them that respect, right? We say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. We do, we, some, some still have those principles and, and, they're, and they're healthy and good. But what he's saying is, is if you're dealing with somebody who is older than you, deal with them in the sense of respect and honor, okay? If you're dealing with somebody who is younger than you, Deal with them with a sense of equality. When he says to treat them as brothers and sisters, what he is saying is this, don't elevate yourself over them. In other words, the family of God, just like the family in home, should function in such a way that there is honor and respect for everybody, and there is equality. There is an equalness to the body of Christ, there's an, there's an equalness to the church. As we find this, as we find this, as we grow into this, as the Apostle Paul says, as we grow into what God has for us, we begin, we continue or whatever to function in such a way that we see and respect and honor those who are older than we are. We see them as being important and significant. We want to connect with them. We want to talk to them. We see the younger generation as those who are, are equals to us. They're, we're not more important than they are. In, in the end, the Lord is saying, ha, ha, function among yourselves with humility. Function amongst yourselves with grace. And when you function amongst yourselves in those ways, you will be, you will be a bright light in a dark world. Because folks, listen, the world knows nothing about functioning in humility and grace. Amen? Amen? But we know, we know the greatest example of it in Jesus Christ. Philippians, the greatest example of it in Jesus Christ. And now we're called to live it out. Not only that, we'll be the gospel. That's what we want, right? I think the heart of all of us this morning is to display what Jesus Christ did for us to other people. The greatest sacrifice ever offered was Jesus Christ giving himself willingly to die in our place to take upon himself our take upon himself our problems, our sins, our difficulties. He took upon himself everything negative about us. And then he died on the cross for that. And he rose again the third day. And he didn't just leave us. He said, I'm, I'm not just going to take all of your problems and your sins, but I'm going to give you all of my righteousness and my goodness. There's never been a greater display of sacrifice and love than that one. And the Lord says to Grace Bible Church of Hollister, California, live that. You be that now. Just for a season. And it is just for a season we're going to get to go to heaven soon. I don't know how soon, but we're going to get to go to heaven one day, aren't we? Amen. We get to do this stuff for a season, and then we get to go and be with our heavenly Father and, and enjoy our reward and enjoy eternity with him. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you have trusted us with your Holy Spirit, trusted us with your grace and your goodness, not, Lord, just to be a recipient of it, but to be a display of it. 
And we pray that you would help us, Lord God, to live out your heart for this world, um, to be a light in darkness, to be a picture of grace and redemption and salvation in the a world of sin. We pray, Lord, that you would do your work in our hearts, that this message and this truth would, would ring true for us throughout this week and would change our lives for your glory and by your grace. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.